Welcome everybody to the Atom CTO podcast. My name is Byron Fatel. I'm the managing director of Atom CTO, and today I'm here with Keshni Mora from Investable. Say hello, Keshni. Hi, everybody. Such a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Byron. Great to have you on, all the way from Johannesburg. So today we're going to talk about a number of different things, really. So you're obviously a, an entrepreneur, an angel investor. Uh, you're running Founder Institute, a chapter of that. So there's there's really quite a lot to to get through. Um, so let's start off with your background. So where did you start and how did you end up at Investable and how did you start that? Okay, so background, um, I actually started working at the age of 17, <clears throat> oddly enough for the South African Revenue Services, so they were kind of illegally employing me, child labor. Uh, <laughs> nonetheless, I turned 18 that year, so I guess it was okay. Um, I started my first speech, first job in corporate was as a data capturer and moved into finance from finance. Uh, studied at the same time my, my BCom accounting, uh, information system strategy, ended up going into Oracle, um, Accenture, and from Accenture, obviously working with the Johannesburg Stock Exchange was the largest project at the time, uh, was headhunted by a company in the UK called Morse Consulting, uh, but it's based out here in Joburg and Cape Town. And that was uh, in the financial services sector, which uh, consulting to CEOs and uh, ex-com members, etc. I was sadly retrenched from that job that I absolutely loved. Uh, I was seven months pregnant with my second child, took it as a big blessing because my first one was just about a year old. And so took a little bit of time off. And actually, the same week that I got retrenched i got a call from vodacom saying listen there's a there's a job opportunity would you consider it um in that very same week got an offer from three other businesses i was highly pregnant at the time i didn't expect any of it and so ended up joining vodacom um in the in the looking out looking after the technology portfolio quickly got tired of the technology side uh in in portfolio management of that and sought out uh I actually hunted down the chief strategy officer, um, and I like just nagged him. I said, I want to be part of your department. I, this is what I bring to the table. And he was quite, <laughs> well, he was taken away because he obviously hired me. And I ended up spending majority of my time at Volcom under mergers and acquisitions and group strategy, where I worked across Africa for them. Uh, come 20s, fast forward to 2017, I was a bit burnt out. I needed a break. But when you are running at 500 miles an hour, you tend not to be able to slow down very quickly. Um, so I did resign, as my doctor suggested. I do. It was resign or die. It was that bad. And um, woke up, realized, okay, I've got a few ideas, but I, like, I, I can't sit and do nothing. So an idea I had while studying for my MBA, um, how do you know somebody's got an MBA? They'll tell you, right? So while studying for my MBA, uh, I had an idea around um, a specific product, uh, more like a, a software that I wanted to produce and see how it would have done. And so the first day after leaving Vodacom, I was like, okay, what am I going to do now? I was like, okay, this is a good idea because I already worked on it a little bit here and there where I got a chance, but not really fully into it. And so I thought, okay, let me keep myself occupied by, you know, just mentally going through the motions of this. And I actually quite, quickly evolved into a business 
um, and got a lot of traction within the first few months, uh, you know, bringing on, I started, I already started attracting investors, uh, customers, and so forth. Um, and what started off as a SaaS platform ended up into two, two retail businesses, uh, that came out of the product market for testing, um, of what I was doing, which was, which was great. <laughs> it was absolutely brilliant because it started attracting the investors and so forth. Um, but quickly as, you know, when you're working with AI machine learning and so forth, the, the bill runs up very quickly and quite high, right? And so the investor I was looking for was more somebody to get me into international markets. And at the time, this was pre-COVID, um, you know, it was, a, it seemed a little tougher. Somehow, I think in retrospect, had I held on a little bit longer, maybe even a few months, uh, six months to eight months longer. Um, I don't know if I <laughs> would have done that or not, knowing COVID was there. Uh, uh, you know, I, I probably would have attracted that investor because the whole world kind of closed up. But online communication opened up. And so a lot like globalization, I think that was the first time we actually experienced true globalization, right, of anything and everything. And so that's how I met you, for example. And, you know, that that ended up just snowballing. So selling that off and just the code and so forth. And then with COVID hitting, um, I had to shut down the two retail stores. Uh, and, you know, it, it is what it is. You take the knock on the chin and you just move on. And so during all that time, because I come from a world of mergers and acquisitions, etc., I would get a lot of founders coming to me say, can you assist me understanding my term sheet? Can you can you assist me in valuations? How do I look at the negotiation with this investor and so forth? And I would help people out just as they would come along. And COVID gave me the chance to kind of regroup as to where I wanted to be and the space I wanted to play. And I thought of creating, um, start developing an accelerator. And as you know, building your own business, you've got to do the research, et cetera. And so I got in and I was like, there's so many accelerators out there. How am I going to be different? And then I came across Founder Institute. And um, prior to that, I never heard of them. Anyway, I applied to them uh, to uh, be a part of Founder Institute. And then I get a call a few months later saying, listen, there's a director position available. Will you be able to take it up? And let's say the rest is history. I currently am still currently with uh, Founder Institute uh, run. It is the world's largest pre-seed accelerator, which is uh, pretty brilliant uh, because it gives it was exactly what I was looking for to start off. And the fact that I could actually do it through Founder Institute on a global basis uh, is what really attracted me to that. And so I, I've preferred to rather um, showcase Founder Institute than create my own accelerator in that space. Uh, but I didn't forget about what I want to do as well, which was help founders find funding for their businesses uh, when they seed in Series A stage. So past the, the point where they have found their product market fit, they have obviously developed a customer base and revenue and so forth, and now they need funding uh, for their tech business. And so that's where Investable comes in, uh, whereas I've created a more formal structure uh, that is um, rewarding not just from altruistic perspective, but as well from a financial perspective to keep me going. And so within that, I've created a number of programs, uh, which I'll be launching soon. And so that fits in very well as uh, on the tail end of Founder Institute and 
um, other accelerators like Techstars or Y Combinator and so forth, or, you know, just catering to that uh, batch of uh, founders who just don't get into those accelerators because they want to understand the funding process. And so that's how I ended up at Investable. And during all this time as well, um, I was part of the Angel African Angel Academy, where I met my partner, Sanjay Soni. And between the two of us, we decided to launch an angel network within South Africa. And we're trying to find a way to be a little more different to the standard uh, operating procedures of an angel network. Uh, it's tough. It's not, it's not easy, but we are looking to help founders raise their funding, et cetera, in this space as well. So it all kind of, it may seem very disparate, but if you look at it in totality, it's kind of building an ecosystem around startups, uh, and tech, tech startups at that. All right. So that's a very complex. That's a long winded. <laughs> that is a very detailed answer. I know. Uh, lots to unpack there. I think one of the fascinating things, if we go back is, that you managed burnout by doing an MBA and starting a new company, which is not really managing burnout in my book. So, so actually, how that happened yeah. is, is sorry, I, I was doing the MBA. I started a, a totally new position that I had absolutely no experience in, which was M&A, uh, mergers and acquisitions. And I was doing that at the same time. And, I, and my firstborn was starting grade one. And... All of that over a prolonged period of time is what um, actually led to burnout because I was traveling quite a bit. Um, you know, I worked ridiculous hours. Um, and that is because actually I loved what I did. I absolutely loved what I did. But I was getting very little sleep, very little rest. I was hardly seeing my kids. And, you know, uh, it's physical, mental, emotional toll on you that leads to it accelerates the process of burnout. How did you know that you were burnt out? Did someone else have to um, No, you pick up the signs, right? So you start making mistakes, like stupid mistakes. It, it's absolutely, you don't even realize you're making the mistake until somebody uh, sends it back to you. And it's not great when the CFO of a company has to call you and say, um, I think you sent me the wrong stuff. And, you know, this has to go into the annual report. <laughs> yeah, the wrong people are correcting you. One, <laughs> it's stupid mistakes. You're just tired all the time, but you can't switch off. Um, and then I went in for my bloods. And so uh, the doctor phones me and says, Kirshni, I, I think you need to either slow down drastically, like get a half-day job that doesn't require to you to be like on the button all the time, or quit your job. Because if you don't, you are going to die. You are going to have a stroke and you are going to die. So can you please stop that? And so it wasn't even a, like a long thought out process that I'm going to resign. It, it never was that. It was literally I had to wake up one day and say, I have to resign. It's quite a sobering moment, that really, isn't it? When, uh, it is. Yeah. It is, yeah. So then how did you go from that into style? Is, style. I'm assuming, I'm assuming that's the, the company you mentioned previously, right? So yeah. what you were working on that while you're also doing the MBA and whilst you're also in Vodacom. Yeah, so I wasn't quite working on it. I had the idea while I was at Vodacom and I kind of played around with it and I tested it out with people. And I was like, oh, this would be pretty cool. But I knew even at that time, what I was trying to do was a bit too ahead of the curve. And so, you know, giving somebody your, uh, like all your details about what you would like to wear and all those things can be quite daunting because some people like feel very, um, like it's intrusive. And so, 
South Africans by nature also are very tactile people. So they would rather go shopping to a, a store, right? So having a setting up a software as a, a platform where you put everything in and somebody else does all that for you kind of was not something that would have been adopted at the time. Now, I think it definitely would be adopted, um, especially during COVID, right? But uh, considering COVID, people were in pajamas, not so much, right, in retrospect. Um, so coming back to your question is the transition between Vodacom and there wasn't a kind of a clear cut for me. It was I almost evolved into it because I needed something to do to keep my mind occupied. It took me a very long time to sleep a nor like a normal person. It probably is like for six to eight months after that, I still couldn't sleep. Sure. Okay. So that, I mean, and I think probably most people listening to this will think, you know, starting up a new business is not a, a way to help you sleep. <laughs> but, um, but I guess as I can understand that, you know, you needed to, to keep your mind occupied. I guess one of the things that stands out for me, um, so far is, is the word resilience, right? So we talk a lot about resilience to entrepreneurs, you know, entrepreneur mindset. And then there's kind of two real aspects to the resilience. One is within business, but one is also personal, really there. Yep. So what, uh, what have you learned about that? I mean, what have you learned about yourself during that journey, uh, when it comes to, to resilience? Um, I, you, you actually underestimate how resilient, how resilient you can be. So for myself, it is, I look, I know, I know, I know I'm a go-getter. When I set my mind to something, I'll do it. Um, mm. and sometimes to my detriment. And so if there's anything that I speak to people about is as an entrepreneur, it's a lot tougher because you're doing it by yourself. If you can find the right tribe to be around you, the right support system, uh, you know, it helps a lot. But even with that support system in place, there are going to be very, a lot of moments you are going to be feeling very down and, um, you know, you'll wake up and like, okay, am I really going to do this today? And, you know, because there may not be a paycheck. There may not be a customer waiting to pay you at the end of the day. And so, you know, before you get into this, if if you're going to have a stronger resilience, I think it is more preparing yourself from a financial perspective because that creates a, a whole stress by itself. And if I didn't have all that in place, I think I, I wouldn't have been as strong as I think I as as I am. To be so you honest. mentioned you mentioned with the business that if you you think that if you stuck out maybe an extra few months you might have gotten the investment. A lot of people that I think a lot of people will resonate with that. I I, I know I've talked to other people about you know when should you quit really because uh, you know sometimes it, there are many reasons to quit and people often have bad reasons for staying in the business right. Um, and so when you were if, I know looking back you know we're all and we're all rich with hindsight, but as as you know, at that point in time, what was going through your mind when you were thinking, okay, I can either keep going for a couple of months, or I can. I'm looking for investment. It might come. It might come. Uh, I might survive. Or were you kind of looking at it from a more practical point of view, thinking, okay, well, actually, you know, it's not looking great. Even if I whatever I do in the next couple of months is not gonna, it's not gonna work. So let's end it rather than trying to keep the fairy tale alive. I mean, what was the what was your mindset at that point? So keep in mind that everything was self-funded from the from get-go, right? So I didn't raise investment externally until that like 
until that point. Actually, when I started thinking about investment, I thought about it's more the avenues of somebody who can open up that somebody could open up for me. And that's the kind of investor that I wanted that not only could bring in money, but could bring in the, the networks that will allow me to, to open up. And so at that point, you know, I met a lot of investors. A lot of them were very interested in putting the money in. They understood it was high risk. And, you know, just about every one of them was like, Kishni, we, we investing in you because we see your track record. We see your drive. We see what you are capable of. So we trust that you will make a plan. And I was at a point where I don't know how to make this plan, right? And I've been trying to make this plan. And if I continue on this path, I'm not going to be able to give their money back because that's the first thing I would always think about was if I'm taking money from somebody as an investment, I have to pay them back. I'm obligated to do so. <laughs> so, you know, it's not, they've worked hard for that money. And even if they didn't, it's their money. It's not mine. I would have to give it back worth more. Right. And so that's just a principle I stood by. And at that point, when I did my numbers, I was like, if I go on for another year, I'm going to put another bar in and then what? And what if I don't get this? Then, you know, what happens? And it, it was just serendipitous that the right person came along to take the code. Right. And I was very upfront about it. I said, these are the issues with the code. This is, and he had a different view of what he wanted to do with everything. And I was, you know what, it's, I had a five-year plan uh, on the get-go. I knew that this, it was a project for me. I got in, I knew what I wanted to do, and I knew in five years' time I wanted to be out. It just happened to be two and a half years early <laughs> and not at the point I wanted to get out. So it sounds like there was a little bit of self-doubt within there. Would that have yeah, been helped? Yeah, would that have been helped with maybe more mentors or advisors? or what? If you look back at that period of time, is there something that could have helped you maybe rethink your... To reframe your thinking actually what i would have if i had to rewind and redo that um i gotta say i would have listened much more closely to people and when they spoke uh so a lot of people would say yeah you're way ahead of the curve you you know people are, are not there yet and in, instead of hearing it's the timing is wrong i didn't hear that right that kind of spoke to my ego and uh, it was like, yeah, I'm ahead of the curve. I'll be ready when I went to CNBC and I said this. And I, I was like, when, you know, something hits, I'll be ready because that's the time I think it will take off. And I honestly believed that. Right. Uh, I mean, I've seen a lot of businesses grow in, in, in those times where it was uh, recessions or, you know, uh, where we thought it was just going to be <laughs> all hell breaking loose. But and I honestly believe that I would have been there. Uh, but when you are in that spot, <laughs> it's a whole different ballgame, right? No one prepares for COVID. I mean, I don't think any, even uh, the biggest corporates in the world prepared for COVID, uh, even though that's the doomsday of everybody's scenario planning. No, we I don't think, actually. Uh, yeah, I think, you, you know, you're doing business happen. continuity planning. You're looking at getting locked out of your office, not really for maybe a couple of weeks, not for two years, right? That's, uh, I mean, that's exactly. Uh, the crazy exactly. thing. So, so now you're on the other side of the table, right? So if you, in a way, go back and think of yourself, you were seeking investment, you were talking to investors, you had obviously that kind of entrepreneur mindset to try and get money in and you you were obviously getting some, some good response. If you now put your investor hat on and think of your younger self, what advice would you have given to that younger self in from an investment point of view? I know we're going to ask this question later on, so I don't want to preempt so that. 
but yeah. My younger self in terms of the business. Yeah. So if you're looking now that you know you you're, you're thinking back in the okay now you're five years on now four years four, yeah. yeah yeah five years on and basically you've five seen a lot ago. more yeah so you've seen a lot more when it comes to startups entrepreneurs the mentor network and angel investment etc etc right so you, you have much more experience so if you were to advise your younger self on seeking investment or whether to to stay or go i know you've obviously said that you you, you would listen more but from an investment perspective what what changes would you make i would say i would have spent a lot less uh, in terms of the development, I would have not focused so much. Uh, so from an investor perspective, even though it's good to focus on the tech and delivery of a specific product, focus more on sales, focus on those things that general people that are used to uh, just delivering like myself, you know, when you deliver, deliver, deliver from an operational perspective, that's your comfort zone. Uh, look for somebody who is good at sales, like immensely good at sales because that's going to make or break your company right and so had i been focused on sales i probably would have been more aggressive um and so if i'd give myself advice going back five years figure out the sales funnel figure out how to first get through the avenues and create the networks needed to sell the product as a, as a software as a service before going and doing everything else right uh the tech stuff will follow but it's going to help in it would have helped uh, tremendously in understanding what had to be done and when it, it quite, had to be done it is quite funny i find that you know you talk to um many in you know startup entrepreneurs and sales seems to be always the one they think about last um yeah. when you really kind of which is a bit strange when you think you want to generate revenue right so sales has to be the first thing you think about so anyway 100 uh, percent it's not um, a spreadsheet. <laughs> it's no. not a spreadsheet. No, no. And there's obviously timings and, and you know you have to get to know the market, which is what I want to talk about next, which is the magical term product market fit, which seems to mm -hmm. have, you know, thousands and thousands of pages on uh, Google, uh, lots of different people giving advice about product market fit, lots of lots of books about it. For you, what does product market fit mean? And and obviously as you said that you found product market fit as a SaaS platform, how did you go about discovering that? So it was more in terms of, so I went to, uh, to figure out the product market fit as to whether the, the software would have worked is actually, there was two parts of it. And one had to be for the corporate itself. So it would be a retailer, Neiman Marcus, uh, locally within Woolworths, uh, the Fashini group and so forth. Uh, the other side was, was, is there willing customers? There are other customers willing to use the day, the, the software via the website or, or an app or whatever. And are they willing to share the information needed for retailers to make various buying decisions so that they can stock clothing that suit their customers and reduce returns and obviously reduce wastage in, in, in the, in the, in the longer run. And so product market fit for me would be one adoption by the end customers, which happened. And I, and I proved that through the retail, the retail um, stores that I opened. Um, that did phenomenally well. Right. So the sales from there, the number of customers, new customers, how many customers I retained, um, the returns, you know, how many, how, what percentage of returns were they on every order, um, the order value. Those were the, the things from a customer perspective that I, I, I could measure to say that had, uh, should a uh, business install the software, this is what they likely to see and experience. So that was my business case that I built to sell the software to corporates. Right. 
I'm gonna be, I'm gonna open cards here. I, I got carried away with the retail side and I spent also a tremendous amount of time trying, trying to get that right because it was outward facing as well. And it was, I didn't want a poor customer service. So I spent a lot of money there and a lot of time, a lot of effort and other resources. So I was burning money everywhere. If like, just like literally just pile it on and light a match. Right. <laughs> um, and so the software side, even though that was quite uh, capital intensive, the product market fit there would have been the, the number of um, retailers that adopted or subscribed to the software, right? And that's the avenue that was missing because that would have been my money piece, not the retail stores, because the retail stores are not scalable, right? Unless I decide to franchise it and open up across the country, et cetera, et cetera, or become the next Amazon or one of those uh, businesses, online businesses, I needed the software to scale. So, you know, one of the things you mentioned was that as part of your desire to scale, you wanted to move into international markets, globalize the, the product. You know, what were for you the main challenges there and the main barriers for, for moving forward? Were there any kind of particular One's based because you're based in South Africa, or is it more general business? So yeah. that's definitely one of them is uh, being African descent here. Um, although I'm Indian, <laughs> I'm born in South Africa. I am very African. Uh, I'm born in Africa. I can say very African. I'm, born, I'm African by default, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so there's a tractor going past my house. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So. The big challenges was where I come from, firstly. Secondly, I'm going into the U.S. market. There are tons of competitors there. There are, you know, uh, if you think that you've got an idea, there's a, probably a million other people with the same idea trying to execute. And so the one thing that definitely stood out was my entire team was outsourced. So my entire development team was outsourced, right? And so that was a bit of a problem for investors. Um, and that was the first thing. If they had to give me investment, it had to be like I had to hire a development team. And so, you know, that that was a bit uh, of, of a shaky situation, but not unsurmountable. Uh, the other issue, I think, was more around how do you how do you guarantee sales? Right. How do you guarantee that you are going to have this pipeline coming in uh, and people are going to be signing up? Because I'm based in South Africa, you want to sell in the U.S. Are you going to move to the U.S. to do this? And that that is a big factor, right? I've got two kids. My husband's got a very successful business, well, a number of businesses, and so it's it was difficult. You can't just I can't just pack up and leave. So those things, all those things, kind of play a big role in in getting investment, and it still does. I mean, if I look at the the investments I make, I need to know that the founder is going to be full time in it. And even though I was, you know, the, my mobility wasn't um, allowing to to do the kind of stunts I needed to do. So I'm interested in the the challenges of being from Africa. What were those, in, in specifically, like what were the People just not think you had the the kind of experience or the, the knowledge or what? I think it's it people don't understand South Africa or they don't understand African. And South Africa is different to the rest of Africa. Um we always have this joke that South Africans think that we think that we like a whole 
continent by ourselves, <laughs> right? When we forget yeah. that we're part of Africa. But that's because in terms of infrastructure, et cetera, we're way ahead of the curve than the rest of Africa. Um, and we are quite a developed country. Um, there are pockets of uh, spaces that need a lot of work still, but in comparison, uh, we're quite developed, right? And so there's actually from a U.S. perspective, even the European perspective, it is the fact that they're putting money into Africa, even though there is the narrative of Africa is going to be the next big thing with the billions of people on the continent, et cetera, et cetera, the buying power is not there, right? And so if the buying power is not there, like what are they going to get out of it, right? Sure. And so obviously now this is compounded by how many unicorns are on the continent, how there's there's not a good track record for this continent in terms of building, um, you know, excellent startups, et cetera, versus if you go to Silicon Valley, it's a diamond dozen, you know. And so investors from overseas are more looking at what are they, what's their ROI. It comes down to the bottom line. They can love you as a person and as a founder, et cetera, but it's not necessarily so that they love you enough to put money into the country. Uh, that you would want to operate in. So you have to think about, okay, is there enough uh, in terms of the networks locally? What is available uh, in terms of investment? And again, that sits in pockets uh, very much around the country and it's quite disparate. So our, our, our tech ecosystem and our startup ecosystem is still... Um, it what's the word for this it's quite disparate it's yeah. scattered and so you know you there's a lot of these government um run entities etc they try and do good but really they're just checking boxes so it's a combination of all these things and then you get into and you get investors and they're like yeah but actually I, i'm not going to get my investment return once i do the the exchange rate calculation and the depreciation of the rand against the dollar and all those things, it all matters. It all surmounts, it all adds up at the end of the day. So in so I, in local currency terms, you could grow. But in sure. once you do the forex, uh, the foreign exchange um, calculation, it, yeah, it could blow your case to kingdom come. Sure. So I, I guess part of you know the, the two issues that you, you cited there, one is a kind of a cohesion and coherency of the startup ecosystem, um, building something that is actually uh, where you, you kind of almost have a honeypot of startups, right? Where you have lots of startups all working, collaborating together in a, in yeah. a single, across a single geographic area. And the fact that, um, you know, trying to get the right investment at the right people at the right time, that's what you're trying to solve with Founder Institute and Investable, right? I mean, that's 100%. kind of, yeah, so what you can see. So let's talk a little bit about Investable then. So what are the main challenges for for startups in Africa at the moment or South Africa that are looking for, for angel funding? It's not knowing where to get it. And firstly, before even not knowing where to get it, is getting their businesses to a point where you can actually invest in them. People are still of this idea that like in Silicon Valley, you've got an idea, you know, if if you've got a track record or whatever, you can get your idea funded before you even start your prototype and, and things like that. That is kind of fine few between. Um, you know, and you'll speak to angels and they'll say, no, I don't actually do that. You know, there's this misnomer that we, it's done in Silicon Valley. I think that's where you have proper sponsors. You have people who believe in you and have worked with you before that understand your capability and are willing to invest in you and your idea before the MVP is off. But that takes a long time to build. And so 
within South Africa, and I think this is not just South African, but um, the, what I've encountered is that people think that money should just be given to them to sort out and build their idea. They really have no clue as to how to build a business, how to vet the idea. Um, you know, forget building the business, how to just vet the idea. Does it make sense? Do, does the unit economics make sense? And if I think back to style, there was a lot of things I missed. And I wished I had a founder institute, for example, to go to and say, I want to think through my idea. They would, I would have, I would have saved a million bucks, you know, within four weeks. I tell this to everybody, you know, and so it's that proper structure and proper education and mentoring around building startups to get them to a point where they have MVP, then they can move on to create and uh, getting that, you know, testing the product market fit is not there. There's a lot of theory out there. There are a lot of programs from a government perspective um, and, and so forth, but I haven't come across programs that actually teach people how to vet their ideas first before going for funding. And so a lot of people that I get coming through the pipe is I need funding and, and they usually refer to the seed funding. And I'm like, it's not actually, you, you slid idea stage. You're at the pre-seed stage. What have you done? How have you invested in yourself and your own idea to see it works? Obviously, so you're seeing lots of startups coming through Investable at the moment. What are the main issues and challenges you see that they face in trying to convince you to get investment? Okay, so the main issues is not having product market fit. Um, and when I say product market fit, I do mean having paid customers, uh, paying customers, not paid customers, <laughs> paying customers, uh, a revenue pipeline, a proper solid plan in terms of how they're going to grow their business. What Do they actually understand their financials and how, at what stage they're going to need funding and what they're going to be using the funding for? And if they don't get the funding, what does that mean for the company? Do they shut down? Do they exit? What do they do? Um, you know, so a lot of the, um, many, many, many of the people that come to me is they haven't validated their idea, right? Uh, we don't invest in ideas. We invest in the execution of those ideas, which means you invest in yourself and you invest in your business first before you get your first investor in. Those days where it, not those, those days, it, there are instances where people get their idea funded, but that's based on a long relationship with a specific sponsor that has worked with them before and is willing to back them because they have a good track record. Um, always tell founders, they're not Elon Musk. You know, they're not Bill Gates. They can't just open, pick up a phone and say, I have this idea. Are you willing to fund it? Mm-hmm. And those guys have a track record. They've built a reputation. They're masters at what they do and the chances of success, succeeding at whatever that idea is, is is phenomenally high in comparison to the average person. So there's different circumstances around every person. And so, yeah, there's quite a mirage of, but those are the kind of the bigger ones that stand out to me. That's quite common. So one thing for me is that, you know, angel investors or any kind of, any round, pre-seed, seed, series A, need to bring something to the table so what are the quality of investors that you see are they are they mostly people who are just looking to fire and forget put some money in or do they actually get involved in the companies and and have active um desire to work within certain industries or with certain types of sectors types of people so the people that i know in angel investing is it becomes more like a sport at some stage it's like how many angel investments have you done you know how many investments have you done especially in this market where 
people are now, you know, in the US, you get an accredited angel. So you know the net worth is quite high, right? And you look at Africa, Africa doesn't have that requirement of being an accredited angel where you have to prove your net worth, etc. Uh, we trust that people will use their common sense and <laughs> kind of cut off when they have to. Uh, but it's it's a gamble at the end of the day, and it's a calculated gamble. And so the one thing I've picked up within um, angel investing, there's a lot of people that want to help. A lot of people want to get into it. A lot of people educating themselves about alternate um, alternate investments. Instead of putting it into a unit trust, maybe, you know what, if I put it into a startup that's got high potential, I'll get 32 times what I put in versus 3%, 5% interest, right? Yeah, and yeah. And so those kind of stats attract a lot of the investors uh, to just try and dabble and put small ticket sizes in just to to see what it is. Um, and so you get two kinds of those uh, passive investors who kind of just put the money in. And those are more like towards private equity, preferably, where they don't have to get involved with the business, etc. But at the earlier stages, it's like at pre-seed seed stage, it's best to actually get involved in the business, understand how you as the angel are going to be able to move the needle forward to help them uh, get their goals, right? So it's, and if, you, if you're not going to do that, kind of be upfront, say, I'm putting the money into you, this is my expectation. And, you know, know you need to know you're never going to know 100%, but at least have faith that the, that that team is going to deliver, right? Do your due diligence on them, on their track record, etc. Then you've so, got the active angels. Sorry? Sorry, I'm going to go for it. So the active angels get involved. They put the money in. They want to sit on the board. They want to get involved in, uh, you know, setting out the roadmap. They open up avenues for the business, uh, you know, to increase business coming through sales, etc. Or it could be even be, you know, improving the supply chain uh, processes or creating avenues for other synergies with various parties. And so those active invade uh, angels generally are looking for a for a for an exit in the in the short term. Most angels look for an exit, say, in the three to five year period. Uh, and so. Angels I work with, are very altruistic in nature, extremely altruistic in nature. They know the, the risk. They educate themselves around what it actually means to run a startup. Many of them have run startups before. So they, they have the context. They have the experience. Those are the best angels because they, they know where the founders are sitting and what has to happen versus, you know, from me, I can tell you this personally going from corporate to, entrepreneurship was a massive change for me it was a big mindset change and it's it doesn't what you've done in corporate to be successful is not necessarily what will work in a business right in a startup it's a great so they understand that yeah i mean that's the that's the thing so you could be ceo of a company you know multi-million pound company but when you start a business you have zero right really Um, hundred percent so that's always the key it's a rude awakening it is indeed it is indeed um so is money that only or is money the only problem for startups in South Africa or are there other issues that are quite, are quite significant as well um so the mentorship thing does remain uh one of the key aspects that need to be still uh looked at because a lot of like i said there's a lot of programs out there but they get corporate people to mentor right. entrepreneurs that doesn't work you need entrepreneurs mentoring entrepreneurs Right, as we do in Founder Institute. And so, I mean, you're part of it, you see what we deliver. 
uh, in terms of mentorship. You know, you've run businesses, you understand. That's what we need imparted on two founders. Not a, uh, what, where we would bring corporates in is to open up avenues, uh, to market access, for example. That's where they play a good role, uh, uh, as, I, as individuals. It, I think the, the, the quality of founders have been, uh, sorry, mentors is, 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 is amazing really on the, on the founder institute. Has it been hard to try and gather them together? Cause it's, Phenomenal, so really, it's got. largely my network. It's actually largely my network. Uh, so it's a network that I've built over time and it's people that I've surrounded myself with. And I trust that I bring on as mentors, uh, into the network so that because I know, again, because I've worn both hats, I'm, it's easier for me to say this person's going to be either be a good mentor or not. Um, and sometimes it is, it's more, it's all about the wisdom that they bring on, you know, um, that they come with. That's what that's what actually matters. Nice. So uh, we're coming to the end of the podcast. Uh, the couple of things to get through first, though, um, a plug for Investable and plug for Founder Institute. Do you want to give a quick uh, overview of how people can get in touch with you for Investable? What kind of companies you look for, and what your um, you know your process is, and similarly for for Founder Institute. So um, actually, the process is a very similar for Founder Institute as well as Investable. Uh, from, from an investable perspective, I look for founders who are looking to raise their seed or series A rounds. Uh, they do have paying customers. They have, uh, revenue. They've found the product market fit. They are working full time in their business. They do have a team to support themselves and they have the resources to raise around. Um, and because there is quite a bit required in terms of, um, uh, people resource as well as, uh, financial resources to raise around. It takes money to make money. This is not a cliche. It, it is what it is. And so to get hold of me, they can, they can connect with me via investable.business, uh, website or go and they can, or they can, um, look me up on LinkedIn, drop me a DM, uh, and we can go through that process. I'll share the link to the, um, uh, application forms where they can go through the application. I review the application and whether or not they make it onto the program. Uh, I do sit down with them and explain to them kind of what the best next steps are. And so that is a paid program. The, and on, uh, Founder Institute, we do run one to two cohorts a year, depending on capacity. Uh, that also we open up at regular intervals where they can go to fi.co and forward slash South underscore Africa and apply online. Uh, it'll go through a full process again. And once they are accepted, uh, it's just a matter of enrolling. Okay, excellent. So final question for you. Uh, and it's a question I ask everybody. So if you could go back in time 20 years and give advice to your younger self, what would that advice be? And you can't say buy Bitcoin or Microsoft <laughs> or Tesla. <laughs> Actually, no, I would have told myself, don't fear networking. You know, network with intention. And I would, I would tell myself to learn how to network properly and learn sales because everything we do is sales, whether there's money flow or not. Uh, you know, everything you do in your job, you are selling yourself. You're selling your skills every single day, whether you're doing a presentation or you're delivering a cup of coffee. It's a sales process. And so, you know, sales, um, I think is one of my biggest roadblocks in life. And I do it because I have to do it, not because I enjoy it. Uh, and so if there's anything, I would have gone back to say sales. 
And that's everything uh, else I really wouldn't have changed. Everything <laughs> else I really wouldn't have changed. I, I've got a phenomenal journey that I appreciate and I've learned from. So that's very good. Well, thanks, though. Uh, Kishni, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for having me. And it was such a joy speaking about <laughs> everything. <laughs>